I want to ask you all to take your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, as we continue our study of Matthew's Gospel. Thank you for standing already in the honor of reading God's Word. Noble living in a needy world. God's calling us to live as royalty. And we've discovered, I think, for the past several months, exactly what that means. This morning I want to speak to you on the certainty of a legacy. The certainty of a legacy. And we'll start with uh, verse 13, read through verse 20. It says, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But you, He asked them, Who do you say that I am? Now that's a question all of us have to come to a place in life where we answer that question and we become firm in our answer. So Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Messiah or the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus responded, Simon, son of Jonah, you are blessed because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter got a name change this day. And on this rock I will build my church and the forces or the gates of hell will not overpower it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth is already bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth is already loosed in heaven. And He gave the disciples orders to tell no one that He was the Messiah. Father, we pray that You would bring us to the place of confession and conviction that Peter found himself and the rest of the disciples. That we can say we know in whom we've believed and that He is able to keep that which we've committed to Him until that day. Lord, that it wouldn't just be something that we confess in a corporate worship gathering, but it would be something that we live out, that we flesh out for this world every day. We pray that... uh, Your Spirit would be our teacher and our guide. In Jesus' name, Amen. You can be seated. Back in the 1930s, and no teenagers, I was not around in the 1930s. Back in the 1930s, we had a decade that was also known as the Dirty 30s because of the severe droughts that were, if you combine them with the poor farming methods that were used in the Midwest and Southwest, brought about what was called the Dust Bowl. The Dust Bowl. A series of dust storms, some referred to as black rollers. Looked like thunderstorms coming across, but it was all dust. It came across consistently, the Midwest and the Southwest especially, touching and impacting really every part of our nation Tales emerged during the Dust Bowl years, which kind of coincided and even contributed to, to a great depression that our nation went through. But tales emerged, all kinds of stories came out of that time. People would talk about how the, the squirrels would have to tunnel above getting through the, the earth that was blowing around in the, the air. Farmer referred to birds flying backwards to keep the dust out of their eyes. Some wise tales came out of this period, like the, the farmer who said he would plant his crops by pitching 
seed into the air because his farm was flying around above his house instead of out behind the house. As many began to move west, and by the way, those who tried to move to California and get in on other things discovered that the Great Depression had touched every part of our nation at that time. There was a group of Texans Texans that formed a club called the Last Man's Club that they had all committed that they would stay right there in their town, right there in their farming community, even if they were the last man standing, they would commit to stay until the very end. They said they would stay there till all Hades froze over and they had to skate out on ice skates. That's the kind of commitment that they said they would hold. They, they were wondering if anybody would commit, if anybody would stay with their farms, if anybody would stay with the land, if anybody would stick it out and learn better methods and discover some way out of this dust bowl, this desperate season. You know, sometimes living in a sin-fallen world, we look at our nation when we watch the news, when we see what's tolerated all around us in the world, we feel like we're in a spiritual dust storm. We feel like we're in a spiritual dust bowl. We are spiritually dry, perhaps because of some poor farming methods, spiritually speaking, combined with the severe drought and the evil that is permeating the world. The disciples wanted to know that if everybody else left Christ, that they would stick it out. That through the spiritual storm, they seemed to be about to be facing. And by the way, there's nothing new under the sun. I know that we like to say, well, times are worse than they've ever been before. Nothing new under the sun. We, a lot of these, these spiritual droughts can be cyclical, and they just happen to be impacting our nation like never before. But the disciples wanted to be in that last man's club. They wanted to say that they would stay with Christ. Jesus' power and His preaching would all of a sudden start losing popularity. And we'll see that as we approach these days leading up to Easter. The crowds would begin to leave because He was coming closer to His passion and suffering. And He would call them to take up their cross and identify with His suffering. One point in John's Gospel, we're told that Jesus asked Peter, are you going to leave me also? Or, or he asked his disciples, will the rest of you, like, like all the big crowds have left, will you leave me also? And Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. He understood that they were in a spiritual drought and that Jesus was the only living water. So the disciples here would begin to fear that this movement might be stifled by the religious crowd who, by the way, never seemed to get it, never seemed to understand what Jesus was about. You know, one of the greatest fears that we have today that the disciples may have had was, will our life really have mattered when we're gone? Is everything we've invested, like those farms in Texas and Oklahoma and throughout the Southwest and Midwest, Everything that we've invested, will it really matter? Is it really making a difference? Is there any certainty that there will be a legacy to what we're trying to accomplish for the glory of God? And they wanted to be right about Jesus. They believed in Him. They trusted Him. They were following Him. And they wanted to know that they were going to be right, that this, this investment of a life would have 
and will pay off in the future. The certainty of a legacy. All along the way, Jesus was sensitive to their concerns. Again, in John's Gospel, we're told in chapter 14, He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Don't be worried about all this darkness that seems to be coming upon me as I approach the cross. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many mansions. If that weren't so, I would have told you. And he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and if I go, I will come again and receive you unto myself. Remember, in the midst of that, Thomas was saying, Jesus, we don't know where you're going. How are we supposed to know the way? John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. He was reassuring them, giving them some words of certainty, and perhaps there's no better passage for the church to understand the certainty of the legacy of Christ and His church as we find in John 16, 13-20. How can we be certain that we're going to leave a legacy that matters as an individual Christ follower and as the body of Christ gathered together called the church? How can we be certain of a legacy? Well, it begins by being clear with your confession. All of us need to have clarity with our confession. We need to be very clear with what we believe and who we have believed in. You need to rest assured that Jesus is who He says He is. In the previous verses leading up to this text, we're told to be aware of man's attempts at self-righteousness. It's not about what you can do and what I can do. It's all about who Jesus is what He has done and what He is doing in you and through you. It is God who works in you and in me to will and to do according to His good pleasure. So if the legacy that we leave and its certainty is based on your ability, on my ability along them, we're all in trouble. But it's not based on who we are, but who He is and what He is doing in us and through us. So He warns them of the leaven of the Pharisees. Religion that glorifies man. But there's another angle here. There's there's not just the religious attempts of man, there's the attempts of man to minimize the importance of Jesus Christ. And so it's in that context that Jesus says, who do the people say that I am in verse 13? Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And so they responded with a popular opinion. Some say John the Baptist, verse 14, or Elijah. Still others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Actually, all of these were prophets, John the Baptist being the uh, New Testament picture of an Old Covenant prophet, the last under the Old Covenant to make straight the way of the Lord. But they would say Jesus is, is merely a prophet. And to them, a prophet was somebody who was really good and had gotten a word from God or somebody who was really crazy. But they didn't understand that Jesus was much more than a prophet. See, they wanted to say He's a prophet, but they didn't want to say He was the Word made flesh. They did not want to say that He was God the Son. He's got to be a prophet. He says things that have to have been revealed from God. Well, listen, Jesus not only received revelation from God, Jesus was the revelation of God. 
Jesus Himself was God made manifest in our presence. So He wasn't merely a prophet. You can't say He was just a prophet or He was just a good man. As C.S. Lewis points out, that he was either Lord, liar, or lunatic. You couldn't say that, that he was a good man because a good man would not claim to be God the Son and the only way to the Father unless he was God the Son and the only way to the Father. He would be a liar or a lunatic. And Jesus claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life, the only way to the Father. So he was more than a prophet. Well, you know, Peter is always willing to speak up. A lot of times in Peter's life, it's open mouth, insert foot. We've been there, haven't we? You know, if you've got more than one child, you've noticed your children are different, and there's always going to be, it seems like that one child who's very quiet and very shy, it's hard to get them to say anything. And then there's the other one that you wonder if you can ever get them to be quiet. They're always the first one to speak up. Now listen, sometimes that can be a frustrating thing. It was frustrating for Peter. When Peter, just a few verses later would say, oh, Jesus, we'll never let them kill you. And he looked at Peter and he said, get thee behind me, Satan. <laughs> that doesn't make you feel like you're a rock. <laughs> Peter was the first one to get out of the boat. Of course, he was the first one to walk on water and then sink. Jesus picked him back up, rescued him, got him back in the boat. So Peter was willing to open his mouth. But then there are moments, listen, if you've got that child, you've got that spouse, you got that person that you say, man, they are just so quick, so quick just to say something, and it's going to get them in trouble sometimes. That may be true, but at other times, when they're walking in the Spirit of God, and when they're listening to what God is saying in them, and God wants to say through them, these can be remarkable people because it's Peter that on Pentecost stood up, preached the gospel, and 3,000 people came to faith in Christ. So that person that you think, man, I just can't get them to shut up, they might be the next Billy Graham. You never can tell. And on this day, at this moment, it was Peter that said one of the most profound things that had ever been said. In other words, he nailed it this time, and it wasn't to his glory or his credit. But Jesus said, who do you say that I am? Let's personalize this. It doesn't matter what everybody else says. It matters what you say. Do you get it? Do you understand who Jesus is? Peter answered and said, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. The Son of the living God. And I wonder if the other disciples looked around and thought, where did that come from? <laughs> well, Jesus explained where it came from. Again, Peter, this time, got it right. Jesus said, Simon, son of Jonah, you are blessed because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. Peter, you're not smart enough to figure this out on your own. But my Father in heaven, my Father has allowed you to see who I really am, Peter. And you are blessed indeed because you get it and the Father has opened your eyes to see it and understand it. That I'm not just one who has received revelation and am passing it on, I am, in actuality, the revelation of God. I am God made seeable, knowable, and touchable, and I'm standing in your presence. And Peter, the Father revealed that to you. We need to have that revelation of Jesus Christ. 
that understanding of who He is. See, He is who He is, whether we ever understand it or not. But we need to be convinced we've received that revelation of who Jesus Christ is in our life. And have that confession. We sang the Apostles' Creed just a moment ago, but, but to sing out and to speak out and to believe and stand on that confession of who Jesus is. I remember being with um, a group of folks. I've shared this story recently with some of you, but a group of folks in, in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. When I was in college, we didn't do beach trips. We did what we called a coastal advance because at Emmanuel College back then you weren't allowed to do beach trips. So we went on a coastal advance and we were witnessing and sharing our faith with a particular individual on the beach and he had had a philosophy class in college and I've heard Dr. Vody Bauckham say the worst thing you can ever do is take one philosophy class that nobody's ever been more messed up in their mind as somebody who has had one philosophy class. If you're going to take one, take at least two or take none at all, but don't take one philosophy class because you think you know everything when you really know nothing as a result of one philosophy class. And he had had one philosophy class and he knew that there was no God and we began to talk to this guy and he said, listen, I don't believe in God. And I said, well, to say, he said he was an atheist. He used that word. He said, I'm an atheist. And um, I said, well, to, to say that you're an atheist is to say you don't believe in God. He said, I don't believe in God. I said, but to say you don't believe in God, you're, you're, you're putting your faith in the fact that there is no God. He said, there is no God. I have no problem saying that to you. There is no God. And I said, but to say there is no God is to say God is not real. And he said, okay, God is not real. I have no problem saying God is not real. I said, but to say anything is not real means you have to know all reality beyond the farthest uh, reaches in the universe. You know everything that is out there so that you know that there is no God. And he started to think about that for a moment because in his philosophy class, he had not covered everything uh, in all of the universe and all reality. And he started thinking about what it would mean to know all reality. And I said, by the way, if you know all reality, everything that is real, everything there is to know, you are omniscient. It's a word that means all-knowing. And if you are omniscient and all-knowing, by very definition, you are God. I said, your problem is not that you don't believe in God, it's that you think you are God. And he said, okay, I'm not an atheist, I'm an agnostic. I said, well, now we're getting a little bit closer. An agnostic says, well, if God is real, there's no way we could know Him. And the truth of the matter is, if God is real and He is transcendent and totally beyond us, there would be no way we could know Him unless God Himself stepped into time and eternity and into space and said, here I am. I am revealing myself to you because I am God and I want to make myself known. That's what Jesus did. He stepped into time and space and said, here I am. I am Messiah. I am the Christ. I am the Son of God. I am God the Son. You can see me and you can know me. And it's been the Father's desire that you have a relationship with Him through me all along. That's the revelation. When we speak of the revelation of God, there's the Word of God. The living Word, Jesus Christ, and the written Word. When we couldn't know God, God revealed Himself to us. We're not smart enough to figure it out, so God comes to where we are, makes Himself known, makes Himself seeable, touchable, knowable, that we might experience a relationship with Him. The Bible is God's revelation of Himself to us. Jesus, the Word made flesh. And we need to be clear with our confession that the Word was with God and the Word was God in John 1.14. The Word became flesh 
and dwelt among us that we could behold His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father. The Bible is God's revelation of Himself. Jesus Christ is the perfect revelation to us. We need to stand on that. Hold fast to that confession. As, as Jude admonished the believers in Jude verses 3 and 4, when he says, listen, I wanted to write this letter to you about our common salvation, but I saw it necessary to tell you to earnestly contend for the faith once for all, delivered to the saints. Fight for that confession. Stand on that confession, he said, because people are going to come in and they're going to deny the supremacy and the lordship of Jesus Christ. Don't let them do it in your life. You hold fast to your confession. You say, I know that I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, went to Calvary's cross in my place, was buried, rose again on the third day, is alive and well, ascended to the right hand of the Father, sent the Holy Spirit to indwell all believers, to show us how to understand the Word of God and to live it out in this world, and that He is coming back one day to receive us unto Himself. That is the confession that we have to hold fast to. That's what we're saying when we say that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. We need to be clear with our confession. And never back away from it. Secondly, we need to be confident in the church. We need to be confident in the church. Now, it's got to be the church built on this confession. Many desire a spiritual life, but reject the church. Hey, where do you go to church? Well, I don't, I don't go to church, but I'm a spiritual person. Really? I just don't like, I just don't like organized religion. Hey, if anybody ever tells you that, say, hey, come to our church. We're not that organized anyway, right? I just don't like organized religion. Here's the translation of that. The translation is, I'll be my own God. I want no accountability, no responsibility, and I want to make no commitments. I'll do what I want to do and try to be spiritual in the process. Their favorite hymn is Frank Sinatra's, I did it my way. I did it my way. Not I submitted to God's way. Not John's Newton, amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Look at verse 18. Be confident in the church. As I say to you that you are Peter. That's Greek word for big rock, or, or sorry, the Greek word for little rock. And on this rock, that's Petra, Petros is Peter. Petra is rock. Big rock. I will build my church. So you are Petros, and on this Petra, you are little rock, and on this big rock, I will build my church. Some have mistakenly said that Peter was the rock on which the church was built, and nothing can be farther from the truth. He says, you are Petros, little rock, and on this Petra, Big rock. What's the big rock? The big rock is the confession that Peter had just made, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So the church is to be built on that statement of faith of Jesus Christ. The, ch the church is built on Jesus, not on Peter. Peter is a rock in the church. He says, you're Petros. You get to be a part of it. I'm Petra, the confession that you just made. I'm the Christ, the Son of the living God. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20 says that Jesus is the chief cornerstone. Jesus is the foundation of the church. 
And we are like Peter. We're a Petros. First Peter 2.5, Peter himself wrote these words, You also are living stones that God is building into a spiritual house. See, the church is not brick and mortar and facilities and, and property and budgets and ministry strategies. The church is you and me. We're the living stones. Jesus Christ is the foundation. He's the big rock. He's the chief cornerstone. We're all the little stones that are being built and stacked together, developed into the body of Christ. God is building His church. Christ is building His church. He says, I will build my church. I love that because sometimes you have these power struggles in churches from time to time. And I appreciate so much the maturity of the body and the leadership here at Trinity that you get it that it's not my church, it's not your church. It's His church. He says, on this rock I will build my church. And so sometimes you hear people saying, well, pastor or the deacons, I just don't understand what's happening to my church. Listen, it's not your church. (laughs) It's not my church. It's His church. We are His church. Maybe we should chant that like people do their favorite football teams. You know, the we are Marshall and we are Georgia or whatever. We are His church. We are His church. Say that with me. We are His church. We need to get that. We need to understand and be confident that it's His church that He is building and putting together. I've got a picture for you here if we're able to display it. In 2014, this is a location that I had the privilege to be in actually back in 2003, but in 2014, there was a new Guinness World Record Lego Tower built in Budapest, Hungary. How many of you have ever thought you built a tall Lego Tower? Anybody ever built a tall one? Maybe with your kids cheat and use the big blocks, you know what, get his... Man, I was awful at that sort of thing. But the, the world's largest Lego tower was built in 2014 in Budapest, Hungary, in front of St. Stephen's Basilica. The Lego tower is made of 450,000 blocks and was some 35 meters high. And yet it still did not compare with the tallest dome of St. Stephen's Basilica. You imagine the work that would go into building a Lego tower like that, and they did it in a relatively short amount of time. People came from other nations to help build this Lego tower. And of course, the Guinness record people were on hand to say that it was the tallest Lego tower ever built. The church that is behind the tower here, it's called St. Stephen's Basilica. Tommy Dove, a missionary that we support with Campus Crusade in Eastern Europe, was able to take me to this part of town and we toured this city and I was able to stand in front of St. Stephen's Basilica and the dome of St. Stephen's Basilica, here's the interesting thing about it, it took them 54 years to build this. Nothing else in the city is allowed to be built taller than St. Stephen's Basilica. But in the midst of the building process, the dome collapsed. That's why it took 54 years. And when the dome collapsed, the architect said, we've got to destroy everything and start over again. And I thought, that sounds more like what my Lego tower would have been like. 
we would, you know, somewhere along the way it would have collapsed and we would have just had to start over and rebuild everything. And, and so we look at man-made structures like this and, and, and they wow us, but they don't stand forever. They wow us and they often fall apart in the building process And we feel like when it comes to the church, we've lost confidence because we're trying to hold it together. Sometimes those of us in ministry, leadership, pastors and teachers and deacons and ministry team leaders, we feel like we've got to hold it all together. And nothing can be worse than an insecure person in ministry leadership where we feel like we've got to hold it all together. Let me just encourage you, if you're in one of those places of leadership, relax. Just relax. It's not up to you and me to hold it all together. We would be in trouble. I would become like a military tyrant as a pastor if I felt like I had to hold it all together. Here's the good news. I'm not building a Lego tower. At least not like that one. We're not building St. Stephen's Basilica and trying to figure out how the the, the architectural design of the dome is going to hold everything together. Christ is building His church. And He doesn't make mistakes. And he is taking stones. Listen, I know some rock masons, and you look at what they've got to work with sometimes, and you say it's just a pile of rocks, and they don't all match, and they don't all look that pretty. But when they begin to put it together, it's like a masterpiece. God is taking us, and we're just stones. We're living stones. And we all have some rough edges, and we don't always look like we fit in everywhere else. But God is taking the mortar of the Holy Spirit, and He's putting us together and crafting us together in a way that will bring glory to Him because it won't be a church that we built. It's His church built His way for His purposes. So we worry that the church is just as fragile as a Lego building, but it's not. So strong, Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against it. A lot of times we picture the gates of hell coming against the church. Here's the thing about gates. Gates are stable. Gates stay in one place. What I believe God is telling us is it's the church that should be advancing against all hell, not hell advancing against the church. The the devil is already the prince of the power of the air. He's already set up a domain here. And he's trying to hold on to what he's got. And it's the church that should go forth advancing, knowing that the gates of hell will not be able to hold us back because greater is He that is in us than He that is in the world. Warnings abound in Scriptures for local churches to be revived, for local churches to be renewed, for local churches to be cleansed, for local churches to not be carnal and ineffective and not close their doors. But when it comes to the church, the body of Christ, the church universal, we're told that the gates of hell will not prevail. That church that's built on Christ. The rock. The collection of true worshipers, true to Christ, will advance victoriously. See, the only question we have is, are we going to be a part of it? Will we be confident in the church? Ask myself this question this week. Will you be a critical complainer or a confident contributor? Will you be a critical complainer or a confident contributor? Be confident in the church. Christ is building His church. And then finally, number three here, be courageous in your calling. Be courageous in your calling. 
He's giving some keys here. He says, I will give you in verse 19 the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Keys represent authority and access. The one with keys has authority and has access. So we have the authority of the kingdom and access to the kingdom and kingdom things. He says, whatever you bind on earth in the Holman Christian standard, say more of a word-for-word translation, says, is already bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth is already loosed in heaven. Some, tra- some translations say whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will, are, will, will be loosed in heaven. What, what is he talking about with the binding and the loosing? In the Greek here, there is a future tense combined with an aorist perfect. And you're like, man, I don't need a Greek lesson and I don't want to confuse you. But the best way to translate that, because we don't always see it in the English language, is this. Whatever you bind on earth will be that which was already bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be that which was already loosed in heaven. You're saying, I don't get it. I don't don't understand. Here's what Jesus is saying in a nutshell. He's saying there are principles that govern heaven. The Lordship of Jesus Christ. The authority of Christ. Kingdom standards that govern Christ and and, and those who are part of His kingdom. And He says, you're going to now have access in the authority the power and the ability through the Holy Spirit to bring God's standards to life on earth and to put God's standards in place on earth. Kingdom standards through the church, kingdom standards in place in the real world. This is God using you as an answer to your own prayers. Right? How did He teach us to pray? We've already looked at that some months ago. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the keys to the kingdom and the binding and loosing is really not that complicated. It's all about us leading others through the power of the Holy Spirit to put into practice the standards that God has already approved in heaven, that already exist and already govern the kingdom of heaven. We will be salt and light in this world by loosing and binding and establishing kingdom principles, listen, even if the world rejects them, even if the world rejects them, we're embracing kingdom standards and we're doing some loosing and binding on earth of those things that are approved in heaven. A lot of times we just don't feel like we have the power, the courage to do that. We need to be courageous in our calling. The three men were hiking a new trail through the woods. Never hiked this trail before, and these three men came to a, a place of rapids. They were thinking about how to navigate through these, this, this river and these rapids, and one of them said, I'll pray to God, God, give me the courage and the ability to cross these rapids. And he had all of a sudden these strong arms that he never imagined he would have before. And he was able to swim and pull from one rock 
to the other and swim and pull and swim and pull until with those strong arms he had navigated the river. The next guy said, hey, that prayer worked. God, give me the power, the courage, the ability to cross this river. And all of a sudden he had legs like an NBA star. And he was able to leap like never before and jump from one rock to the next to the next with such a uh, uh, vertical and horizontal leap. He, he, he never would have imagined he would have been able to jump like that. And he made it across the river. And the third one said it worked for them. God, give me the courage and the ability to cross these rapids. And, and his eyes were open and he saw that there was a bridge right there anyway. God made him a woman and he walked across the bridge. Right? He didn't have to flaunt his stuff. He just The bridge was there. He walked across, right? Listen, sometimes we're saying, God, I want to be a witness. I want to make a difference. I want to leave a legacy. I want my life to count for time and eternity. Just give me the courage and the ability. And God says, I've already built a bridge. I've given you the keys. I've opened the door. I've made it possible. Just walk through it. Take those opportunities and go where I'm leading you by the grace of God give you some examples of being courageous in your calling and, and, and bringing these kingdom principles to bear on earth. Prayer and faith. The world may reject the whole idea of prayer and faith. The government may take it out of our public schools and every public venue possible. But you, personally, should be known as a person of prayer regardless of what the world is known for. And people can see kingdom principles in your life because as a person of prayer, God opens doors and you walk through them. What about the area of marriage? The world is totally lost and confused on how to define marriage, and now they're discussing even whether or not it's important to define what marriage is. But you can choose to reflect heaven's purpose through a one man and one woman relationship a commitment for a lifetime, modeling the kingdom covenant of Christ's love. Remember, marriage is a little picture of the big picture. And so you're binding and loosing on earth those things that are bound and loosed in heaven by modeling a godly marriage. What about areas of power and influence? The world may say cheat, cut corners, trample anyone who gets in your way, make it to the top on the backs of others. But you have the keys to greatness in the kingdom. Because Jesus says if you want to be great, you become the servant of all. You start working hard to make others look good. Be a blessing to others. Lift others to a higher level. You be the servant and you watch what God does to bless you and give you more influence and power and make your workplace, your home, and everywhere you go a ministry for the glory of God. What about purpose? The world says personal happiness. The world says personal happiness. That's why we've got to be careful that we don't buy into the world's standards. Listen, God, is there a certain spiritual happiness and blessedness that comes from knowing Him? Yes. And at His right hand are pleasures forevermore. The greatest joy, the greatest happiness comes from knowing Christ. But listen, God's intent is to make us holy, not make us happy. To make us more like Jesus Christ. That's why you've got to be careful about spending so much time in social media. You go on Facebook and I spend some time there, but you go on Facebook, and, and everybody puts all their happy pictures. And if you spend too much time there, you'll think, well, listen, everybody else is just on vacation all the time and eating these delicious meals all the time, and everything's wonderful in their life all the time, and they're only showing you the one twentieth of their life that's good. Rare is the person who just kind of pours out their heart and complains, and they're there too, right? 
but we spend so much time in social media that we convince ourselves everybody else has such a, a wonderful and awesome life. Listen, I only put the happy moments on Facebook. I, I, you know, when, I, when the bills come in the mail, I don't lay them out on the table and say, let me take a picture of my bills. Post that on Facebook. And so be careful about social media. Listen, you want purpose, you want joy and happiness. The world says it comes from get all you can, can all you get, and sit on the can, right? God says, seek ye first the kingdom of God. Know the king and be about making him known. Share the gospel of the kingdom so that you're passing those keys around, right? So more people will have access. Because Romans 1.16 says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it's the power of God and the salvation. Share that good news with everybody that you possibly can. That's your purpose. That's your calling. That's why the moment you prayed to receive Christ, whether it was when you were 10 years old at a church camp like me, or, or, or at a church, or at home, or in your bedroom, at the moment you prayed to receive Christ, you didn't get, boom, raptured right out of here, because God has a purpose and a calling for you to be a witness and take those keys, and open the doors for others to come and dine as well. You have the keys to the kingdom. Be courageous in your calling. Would you bow your heads with me?